Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Shannon Paulus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, July 16th. On today's show, we'll talk about how some news outlets, including Slate, create an extra stream of revenue by including Amazon links in their articles. Since we're in the midst of Amazon Prime Day, which is poorly named because it is now two days, we thought we'd talk about the ethical questions that come up when journalists rely on this symbiosis with Amazon. For an extra level of insight, I'll talk to Jackie Chang, former editor-in-chief of Wirecutter and current editor-in-chief of Music at WQXR. After the interview, my colleague Aaron Mack will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. So, now we're going to talk about Amazon Prime Day, or Prime Days, as it's today and yesterday. There's some scope creep happening here with this made-up holiday. For the uninitiated, Amazon is deep discounting a lot of goods. Other places are having copycat sales. And many, many news outlets, including Slate, are devoting at least some coverage on what to buy. And they're doing it because of affiliate links. When you buy something that they recommend, they get a little bit of the purchase price. It's not a kickback per se, because that implies that something nefarious is going on. But as with any source of revenue from journalism, the ethics can be tricky. To think about how consumers and journalists should navigate all this, I'll be catching up with someone who has both a lot of authority and a little distance on the topic, Jackie Cheng. She's now the editor-in-chief of music at WQXR. But before that, she was in charge of editorial at Wirecutter, a product review site that under her leadership became part of the New York Times company. Wirecutter is also my former employer, which makes Jackie my former boss's boss's boss. <laughs> Welcome, Jackie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And thanks for the great intro. <laughs> Happy Prime Day. <laughs> yes, yes, same. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this went from being such a part, large part of both of our lives um, to pretty much not at all. And so I'm wondering, like, how do you feel about that? Are you engaging with Prime Day as a shopper? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I sort of forgot about it until I showed up on the internet today. And then I was like, oh, right. Yes, <laughs> Prime Day. Um, to be honest, I'm actually still kind of following, you know, of course, I'm biased, but, you know, I'm fi- following Wirecutter uh, coverage just in case there's anything worth talking about. But I um, just keep an eye on it. Mm-hmm. So you haven't bought anything yet? No, to be honest, I'm not like a huge shopping kind of person. I never have been. Uh-huh. Um, you know, when I was leading Wirecutter, I always felt like that was one of the weird things about Wirecutter that I liked, which is that we were a little bit um, anti-consumerist at the top. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm still like that. So no, I haven't bought anything. That's actually so interesting that you say you're anti-shopping because I definitely got that general vibe when I was at Wirecutter from like the leadership in general. Um Could you explain to me why it made sense when you got an offer to be the editor-in-chief of a shopping website, how that made sense for (laughs) someone like you? Well, I would say, you know, just to nitpick, I don't think that at the time when we first were coming together to really form a team for Wirecutter, we were never thinking of it as a shopping site. And to be honest, I don't still think of it as a shopping site. Um, 
you know, at the time when Brian Lamb, our founder, um, was starting Wirecutter and then he asked me to join, he and I were coming from the world where we were writing one-off, lots of one-off individual tech reviews. Mm -hmm. So we were writing tons of phone reviews and tons of laptop reviews. And he just called me up and was like, how ridiculous is it that friends of mine ask me what to buy when they want to buy a laptop and I just can't tell them the one answer. And so when he started Wirecutter and I joined, our goal really was mostly just to cut out a lot of the noise of uh-huh. having to hunt for, you know, the best thing and just tell people what to get and help people. So in that sense, I think uh, it it resolved for me. And, <laughs> and um, you know, for the whole time I was there, it was okay for me to do that, feeling the way I feel about uh, shopping, because I don't think that we were ever telling people to buy things um, explicitly. I think we were saying that if you're going to buy a blender, <laughs> you know, here's the best one here, you know, here's the best robot vacuum. If you're going to buy a robot vacuum, you know, we have daily lives to live and there are some things that you just have to buy or you want to buy. Um, and so that was always um, my goal. And that still kind of is, you know, when people ask me for advice, I try not to tell them just to buy things. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, And I always appreciated how, as a writer at Wirecutter, I was always allowed or even encouraged to include a section where I could advise readers to just keep the old thing they had instead of upgrading. Yeah, I mean, I I always like to you know reduce waste too. You know, I don't like the idea of throwing out a lot of stuff. Um, And so, you know, if we can avoid buying new stuff to replace old stuff that still works, that's always good. Was it ever hard having that philosophy, especially after Wirecutter was acquired by the Times, to, like, Wirecutter makes money off of people clicking on the affiliate links, and then if you're kind of, um, if you have this underlying philosophy of, like, maybe you could fix something, maybe you could replace something, did those two goals ever come into conflict for you? I mean, I think it's always a little hard to... um maybe articulate that, that yeah. uh, you know, how these things may balance out. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe, I, I won't deny that I think externally people probably do see the site as a shopping site. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it was maybe challenging to have enough coverage that sort of shows the other side of the, you know, the coin there as far as like us being a little bit you know, not pro shopping per se. Uh Um, I think we could have articulated it better, but I never felt any pressure from anybody to say like ramp up, you know, telling people to buy stuff or, Uh um, or to ramp down, you know, advice to avoid buying things. You know, I think that if there was ever any pressure, it was just the usual internal, you know, debates (laughs) that we always have. Um, but I don't think there was any, any pressure from the top. That's good to hear. Um, so to circle back to the Prime Day question, I'm wondering what the first Prime Day wire cutter was like. I don't think I was there. Yeah. You know, I, of course, now my I'm having a brain fart, so I can't remember <laughs> the exact year, but I want to say it was maybe even only three years ago or maybe four. But um, I see Prime Day as, you know, Black Friday in the middle of July. And mm-hmm. that's how I saw it back then when they were first announcing it. I was like, oh, I see. They're trying to make a Black Friday in the middle of July. Yeah. And um, and I would say that, you know, of course, this is my confirmation bias, but I would say that I feel like that is what happened and that is um, where we're going now, you know, in the same way that Black Friday has kind of taken off um, over the last, I mean, like 20 years or whatever, I think Prime Day has taken off in the last, you know, three years. It's, it's basically become its own weird midsummer holiday in a, in a shopping sense. Um, you know, the only thing that's exciting is that like, if you have your eye on certain things, you know, you can probably count on Prime Day to have a decent deal. So like, 
I'm always, I mean, actually not me personally, my husband's always losing Kindles. And so half the time I'm always like, wait till prime day, at least you'll get like a little bit of a discount to buy a new Kindle. Um, so there's always that. Um, this is like something that I always have trouble working out in my own head. The fact that um, conditions for Amazon workers are pretty bad and workers at a warehouse in Minnesota are on strike today to protest Prime Day. Mm-hmm. And how do you grapple with that kind of dissonance as someone who is like socially conscious and aware in the world um, and someone who, you know, in part used to make a paycheck off of mm-hmm. Amazon affiliate links? Yeah, I mean, it is obviously it's a topic to consider. You know, yeah. I would say just on a total personal level, um, it is. I would say that I do avoid buying stuff on Prime Day and also Black Friday. Um, mm-hmm. It. I think that it is both. Like, you know, I, I actually think a lot about why we do those things and what kind of um, impact you're trying to make when you make small actions like that on an individual level. Um, because I've considered some of the counter arguments, which is like, oh, are you going to also stop watching um, Prime videos today? Are you also going to avoid every website that uses AWS? Like, of course not. I think we would all basically have to staff the internet if we were going to do that. But right. I think that the thing for me with not shopping on Prime Day is just frankly, like Prime Day is, you know, just like every shopping event, it's kind of a marketing and PR, you know, event. And so for me, it's like about impacting the numbers. Like they want to be able to brag in three days about how, however many things got ordered and however many things got shipped. And I'm just not going to be part of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for me, that's, that's the impact. Um, I do think it matters, like as far as conditions for workers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we could have talked a little bit more about that stuff in, in our reviews in general when mm-hmm. I was at Wirefitter. But um, again, I think that conditions for workers have always been kind of in the back of our minds. So it's an interesting dichotomy because um, when we first started you know, working with Amazon so closely as part of Wirecutter, Prime Day didn't exist. So this kind of thing was a little less kind of in people's faces. Yeah. I think for me, like, one of the biggest moments of, like, cognitive dissonance looking back is when you talk about, like, hard numbers for Amazon, um, like, Wirecutter started releasing these little cards for Twitter that would say, this is how many deals were posted, this is how many ones, deals that we found that were good. And, Mm -hmm. like, as a staffer, you know, I contributed to scanning deals, I contributed to those numbers. I felt such a sense of pride when we were going over Prime Day numbers after the day for my colleagues and, you know, just for us as a publication, being able to, you know, work through this mountain of deals and bring, you know, 100 great deals to our readers. Um, Mm -hmm. That's hard for me to grapple with. Um, and well, I yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, and did you think about that kind of thing, like in Twitter messaging? Well, I will say, as the person who basically came up with that entire like thing, which is like we went through ten thousand deals right. and we only found you know point eight percent. Um, I have to say, again, like honest to God, the way that we even came up with that was actually to show how many crappy deals oh. are out there. Like when we first started blasting that stuff, it was probably like. Black Friday of 2013, uh, when we started blasting those numbers, it was actually to say most deals are crappy. And we found the, you know, 0.8% that are not crappy. And so I think that, frankly, I felt like that's what we were carrying on. But I think that the way that it was being spun was maybe a little more positively every time, Uh Not, not necessarily saying these other deals are crappy, but rather being like, we found, you know, 200 deals, which you know, in my opinion, 200 out of like 10 billion deals is like pretty okay. 
uh, you know, that means that you're hopefully narrowing it down to the best stuff. But, um, but, you know, I, I won't deny that, like, as you just said at the end of your thought there, like, I think that especially when it comes to Black Friday and Prime Day, as you're kind of looking back at the numbers, you know, the next week or whatever, you know, we obviously looked at everything besides just the number of deals that we posted. We looked at, you know, how things turned out for us. So yeah. there's a little bit of dissonance there. Yeah. Um, and I will admit that probably like that makes a lot of sense. And like my focus on that number, too, it just comes from being so proud of myself as a scanner when I find a good deal <laughs> and I get to like add one. It's that little like rat brain of like, oh, I'm contributing. Like, right. Yeah. yeah. It was kind of more like a needle in a haystack kind of thing, you know, yeah. where you're just like, I found one that's actually useful, <laughs> you know. But of course, I think we all know most of them are not useful, which is, um, I think that's actually what is hard on, on the rest of the staff sometimes is that you look at so many like crappy deals that you're just like, oh my God, everything is so terrible. Is there anything that you would be doing um, differently or if you were at Wirecutter right now regarding all of the Amazon stuff? Is it just like, seems to have mm. this increasing grip on our lives? Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's hard to say. And you know, as I think we've revealed in this conversation, it can be a little bit of a complicated situation, um, yeah. not just because of the money, but also because of like how you help people. And is it helping people to help, you know, point them to these things to buy, even if they are useful? I don't know. But mm-hmm. um, I do, you know, I, I think that it's becoming harder to not acknowledge, you know, the things that we're seeing day to day and just uh, knowing that things are not always smooth. Um you know, with Amazon workers, I think that's just something to consider as you make buying decisions. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Jackie Chang, former editor-in-chief of Wirecutter and current editor-in-chief of music at WQXR. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um... There's so, so many websites out there now that are using the affiliate link model. Um, If you were talking to a class of journalism students who are getting into this profession for like really bright eyed and bushy tailed reasons, but are possibly looking at a lot of jobs as the first job that involve Mm e-commerce, is there any advice that you would give them on how to vet a particular job opportunity or a website, like a vital sign to check to make sure that they're going to be working at a place that is doing good in the world versus just spewing out Amazon links? Hmm. I mean, it's so complicated because I think sometimes you can't always know until you really get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, if you care about ethics and journalistic integrity, then I think that the thing maybe to ask about, especially if you are going to get into recommendations and stuff, is, you know, who gets to make the call? on who, what the recommendations are, you know, who is part of the process, like who has to review those, those decisions. Um, you know, where does it end? Like, is it with you an editorial team or an editor of yours or something like that? Or is it with someone at the marketing team? Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's just good to know. I think that sometimes young reporters don't always realize that some writing jobs actually report to the marketing team. Uh, so that's just something to be aware of too when you're um, just uh, learning about a company. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you see Wirecutter's role in the larger New York Times ecosystem? Uh, how so? Um, I guess, okay, so I'm going to put this back on a Slate editor, uh, Dan Coyce, who said this morning when we were chatting about this interview that part of Slate's affiliate link revenue is, and part of the service journalism that Slate does surrounding affiliate link revenue is to support um, monetarily the rest of Slate. And that, you know, Mm -hmm. it's service journalism and it's good, but it also exists to support um, our pieces that don't generate revenue. Sure. Um, did you ever have the feeling at the New York Times that Wirecutter was kind of in part around to generate cash? Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. I would also say that that was not... Um, I, I do think that Wirecutter is there to help support like the digital revenue side of the business. Uh-huh. Um, and New York Times, I don't know if they still do because I don't follow it as closely as when I was working there, but they would always used to include Wirecutter as part of the um, financial reports because we yeah. were beginning to make a dent on that side. Um, that said, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, before New York Times, frankly, like Brian and I used to talk all the time about how, I mean, just like you said it, except within Wirecutter, we were like, hey, some of our stuff goes bonkers and some of our stuff we just do because we want to do it in the service of readers and the bonkers stuff supports our ability to do these other things and Uh so even within Wirecutter we saw it that way before and I think when we became part of the Times I think we still saw it that way both for ourselves and maybe also for the larger org I think again separating the fact that I worked there for a bit like I care a lot about like news in the world and I think the Times is a is an enterprise that I want to support just like even you know on a moral level uh, Mm -hmm. personally so I think that for me and for maybe some others maybe not everyone um, I was okay with that. So journalists including Slate went through a period of relying like on Facebook for a lot of traffic and then Facebook Mm -hmm. suddenly decides to change its algorithm and we got screwed Um, and I'm wondering how outlets uh, like Wirecutter that focus on affiliate revenue from Amazon should be worrying or not worrying that Amazon is going to change its affiliate program and possibly uh, cut off a chunk of income there. I don't want to speak for Wirecutter on this one, but I think that this is kind of public knowledge, which is that Amazon actually changes the affiliate rates all the time. Mm-hmm. Um just a couple of years ago, they made like big cuts to a bunch of their main categories, but then they made adjustments to other categories, like with the idea that they were balancing it out. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's just a reality, actually, that they have the ability to change rates, and they do. And so, yeah, I think anybody who um, is relying heavily on that stuff, I, I don't want to use the word worry, but I think that anybody who's relying on it definitely should have their eye on it, um, you know nothing lasts forever, right? So I think that's just kind of um, like the reality of that situation. Do you um, see a way that people could or should be diversifying more? Um, I guess what I'm asking is if you have a solution to this entire problem off the top of your head. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, (laughs) off the top of my head, I don't really know. Um, I suppose if you have a lot of relationships with lots of different manufacturers and you can, uh, you know, forge affiliate deals individually with, with lots of different places and not just with Amazon, that, that's obviously more of a tactical move. And I, maybe that's a good one. It kind of depends on what kinds of stuff you recommend, too. Because, mm-hmm. 
I, you know, I actually don't remember all like what all the categories are even, but you know, different categories pay differently. So, you know, you might be able to make different relationships, but I, you know, I don't know. I think that, like I said, Amazon changed its rates just a couple of years ago. And so it may be ripe to do it again. And you'll probably see quickly how many people are complaining online about the rate change. Um, and you'll know how many people are affected, yeah. <laughs> but sorry, unfortunately I don't have an answer. <laughs> Um, Thank you so much for coming on, Jackie. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Okay, we're going to take one more break, and then my colleague Eric Mack will join me for this week's edition of Don't Close My Tabs. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, now it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. With me is my colleague, Aaron Mack, who will be hosting the show next week. Hey, Aaron. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good. What is your tab for this week? So my tab this week is a Facebook event called Storm Area 51. They can't stop all of us. Uh, So this event is scheduled for 3 a.m. on September 20th, and the description on Facebook reads, We will all meet up at the Area 51 Center tourist attraction and coordinate our entry. If we Naruto run, we can move faster than their bullets. Let's see them aliens. Um, (laughs) So... This event now has 1.3 million people confirmed attending and a million people interested. It's gotten enough attention that the Air Force has put out a warning saying that this would be illegal and extremely dangerous. Uh, It's pretty clear that the event is supposed to be a joke, and I think most people realize that. But the New York Times actually reported yesterday that hotels near Area 51 are getting an unusually high number of reservations for September 20th. Um, And some people are mentioning this Facebook group when they make the reservations. So... I hope no one gets hurt or anything, but I've generally been really interested in these, like, mass joke online events. Um, There was that one last year where 30,000 people signed up a change.org petition to let people drink the red liquid that the uh, archaeologists found in that sarcophagus in uh, Egypt. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I think it's just a really kind of funny and stupid internet phenomenon that I really hope doesn't turn into anything destructive. Is there a reason why this is scheduled for September? I don't know the thinking behind that. Maybe they just need a couple of months to uh, get everything together, <laughs> or I don't know. I, I yeah, I hope nothing happens like IRL. But uh, yeah. and the three a.m. part of it too. I guess that like kind of signals very clearly that it's a joke. But I feel like extra concerned for everybody who would show up and like be tired on top of everything else. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully nothing actually happens there. And what's your tab for this week? Um, my tab for this week is a book that a lot of people are talking about. It's called Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Brodesser Ackner. And one thing that this book did for me was it made me start reading in the mornings again. Um, or for the first time, actually. I think the only time I've ever done that is like in my in my New Year's resolution, hopes and dreams for myself. Um, it, it's just really fast and engaging and made me want to start the day doing something other than looking at Twitter which was a huge (laughs) life improvement. 
And also I found the description of online dating very interesting. Um, It starts off um, as a book about this 40-year-old-ish man who has recently gotten divorced and is entering the world of dating on apps. And he's faced with all of these women apparently kind of throwing themselves at him digitally. And I found that description very, like, wrong and alienating and was sort of indignant about how wrong it was because I've used apps for years to make, like, you know, there's always, like, some sketchy stuff on apps. But I, you know, I have a boyfriend who I met on an app and find it, like, very useful for making real connections. And the... The way that she describes online dating apps to this character ends up being like a very important character point in the book. Um, and it was very interesting to see apps described through someone else's eyes. Huh. So wait, is the book centered around these apps or is that it's a major like a of it? theme for the first half? It's like kind of how he uh. conducts all of his interactions Um And I listened to um, Taffy, the author, talk about the book, and she said that that facet of it originated from when she wrote for GQ. She pitched her GQ editor, like, in 2016, like, or maybe a little bit earlier than that. Like, hey, everybody's dating on apps now. And she's been married for a while, and so her editor was like, yeah, we know. (laughs) And so this book was like, she, like, ended up turning, like, her observations of them into, like, a thread in this book. But I thought it was funny that, like, she tried to pitch it as, like, a trend story in the um, (laughs) mid-2010s. Yeah, I do notice a phenomenon of people who got married before apps came out, these dating apps, and they're just really fascinated by them. I think, like, there's a little... FOMO there. Um, yeah, yeah I've, I've been really interested in like the married people's reactions to uh, apps. All right, that's our show. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Shan Paulus. Thanks again to our guest, Jackie Chang. You can follow her on Twitter at eJackie. And thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks also to Danielle Hewitt, who engineered for us in DC today. We'll see you next week.